Hey everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Can't Stop Snapping. I just want to start off saying thank you again for all of the great support. Uh, we've had more and more listeners as more and more episodes have released. So I appreciate you all continuing to tune in and to, uh, you know, support the podcast, to reach out to me on Twitter, on, on Discord, on Reddit, etc., and giving your thoughts and opinions about the podcast. We really appreciate it. Before we get launched into today's episode where we break down the four cost cards, I just want to take a second and, and talk about a, one topic very briefly, which is monetization in the game. Uh, monetization in any free-to-play game can be a tricky subject, uh, can generate heated conversations, and, and there are a lot of valid points shared around of you know, predatory practices that exist in several games that are out there today. Uh, I'm not going to read any quotes or anything, but you know, Ben Brode uh, did post several comments on the official Discord yesterday, June 8th, um, sharing his thoughts about you know, their inspirations around monetization, their thought process, and he shared a couple of, of inspirations and a couple of thoughts. Uh, one thing is that their plans with monetization was not that somebody could instantly come into the game, drop a ton of money, and immediately unlock all the cards. That's not what they wanted. They wanted people to be able to unlock cards over time at a certain rate, explore and experiment with different cards, different deck archetypes. And so they had that in mind when they designed the monetization. Um, So basically, they tried to create a system where, yes, you can spend money to speed up the process of acquiring new cards, but you can't just pay money to buy packs of cards or something that will just unlock all the cards day one. So that's just one little snippet, one little piece of what what he said they're going for. There are still heated debates about, you know, monetization in lots of games, as well as this game as it's in its beta and now in its uh, uh, soft release in the Philippines. Um, But I would love to hear your thoughts. If you have thoughts about the monetization, you know, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter at can't underscore stop underscore snap with your thoughts. Uh, I would say join the the official Discord as always. Uh, There's lots of great conversation. The devs are listening. They do comment back on what people are sharing about the game, their thoughts and opinions and their concerns. So if you want to be participating in that conversation, giving your thoughts and opinions on the game and, and hopefully making an impact on the future of the game, make sure to join there. With that all being said, thank you again for listening and let's jump in today, into today's episode. Hey listeners, we are back with another episode in our series of breaking down all of the Marvel Snap cards in the beta right now. Uh, We are here with the episode covering the four cost cards, and I'm joined by another great co-host today. Blade is joining me. Blade has been uh, putting out content on YouTube uh, ever since the beta came out and has been creating some great stuff, tutorials and and explanations of stuff about the game. And I'm really excited to have you. Thank you for joining me, Blade. Ah, Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, no problem. Well, before we dive into the cards, I just wanted to give you a chance to... uh, you know, you've been covering the game. You've, you've obviously kind of built up a knowledge over the short time we've known about the game. I just want to know, what are your general impressions so far? What are your feelings about the game and your outlook for the future of the game? Sure, definitely. Um, so, honestly, at first, uh, when I was watching the reveal, uh, there's the obvious initial level of hype, both because I love card games, so saying a new card game is always exciting, uh, but also being... I wouldn't call myself a hardcore like Marvel comics fan, but Marvel IP in general, big fan 
So seeing the two of those come together is always super exciting. Um, as some of the reveals were being released, uh, I had a lot of questions just because like 12 card decks is a pretty huge departure uh, from typical card game scenarios. The locations is a nice fresh take on things. Uh, but as I've played and learned and watched more and more, I think it makes just so much sense and it's been so incredible to play so far. It makes deck building so simple. You don't have to deal with duplicate cards. The location adds enough variance and exciting moments to where games don't feel the same every time. I really think they hit like the perfect card game formula, which is a big thing to say, I know. Oh, yeah. I mean, 100%. And I couldn't agree more with many of the things you said. I mean, they've obviously been working on this game for several years before they've really let the public know about it. And you can just kind of tell they've, they've hit something, they've hit gold, and they've kind of figured out the, a nice blend of features of gameplay, of strategy, etc. And a lot of people are excited about it. Well, awesome. Thank you for sharing that. So uh, we're going to dive in here. We're going to follow the similar format we've been following on the last few episodes. So, uh, you know, we will go through, I will uh, give you the title of the card, I will give you the cost and the power level, and I will read the description. And then uh, we will break down each card, give our thoughts, give our impressions. There may be cards, you know, we, we focus on more than others, just based on the play we're seeing so far or the theory crafting we may have, but we will get started here. So the first four cost card is Crossbones. Crossbones is a four cost, eight power card, and his ability reads... You can only play this at locations where you have more power than your opponent. Uh, you know, my first impression of this card blade is I think it's, uh, you know, it, it's not the craziest effect we've seen, but uh, an eight, an eight power uh, drop for a four cost isn't anything to shy away from. And I, and I think this is a pretty decent card. What are your thoughts? Yeah. I mean, I think it's going to be one of those things where I would probably have to just give it kind of an average rating. Um, obviously the, cost to power ratio is solid but being that you have to have more power than your opponent there it's kind of a win more card and it's the, the way that a lot of the games play out is a lot of bluffing of i may look like i'm weaker than you at a location when really i'm setting up a power play whereas crossbones you don't really have that opportunity um so i don't think he's bad i just think he's going to kind of wind up being fair which is crazy to say for that cost of power no, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it could be like you're saying, like you've already played several cards there and that's the reason you're ahead. And then playing him there may be overcommitting, right? Mm -hmm. You never know. So it makes a lot of sense. Well, continuing on here, we have Crystal. Crystal is a four cost, four power card and her ability is on reveal, shuffle your hand into your deck and draw three cards. Um, obviously, you kind of already pointed out, you know, we're kind of in this crazy departure, you know, 12 card decks, right? So this is allowing you to put your hand into your deck and draw, you know, what would be 25% of your total original deck. So uh, just right there, um, you know, it's very interesting to me because you're, you know, we don't see a ton of draw in this game just because of, you know, there's only, you, you already draw nine of the 12 cards to start with throughout the game. If you mm -hmm. go all the way to, to round six. So what are your thoughts about the draw and kind of the mechanic crystal has going I've actually never seen her played in game, but I think she's actually quite solid. Um, the obvious implication would be in something like the Nova Carnage type decks, where you're playing a pretty heavy mass of one and two drops, where you can probably empty your hand pretty quickly. So Crystal can allow you to refuel if you're empty. But on top of that, 
her being able to draw your additional three cards means you can see your entire deck every game outside of opponent interference. So one of the only weaknesses of like that Carnage Nova deck is if they don't draw Nova mainly or one of the other combo pieces, whereas Crystal can kind of make sure that that happens. And while that Nova deck may get balance adjustments at some point, I'm sure that there's going to be other cards that kind of just flood the board super quickly. And Crystal would be a great way to refuel and keep that strategy going. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. That that makes a lot of sense. Well, continuing on here, we uh, go to Dracula. Dracula is a four-cost, zero-power card. Uh, after the final turn, discard a card from your hand. This has its power. Uh, I'm not sure if I've seen this one played, so I, I, I don't know. I, I, most of the discard in this game, correct me if I'm wrong, if, you, if you've seen differently with this card, uh, normally has been random. So I don't mm -hmm. know if this is a, a random card or a chosen card from your hand. I want to say it's random. Uh, which does limit your control a little bit because you obviously want to whittle down your hand to have that extra card to, uh, to uh, play from your hand um, so that you can get this power. Um, so I'm not sure. I mean, the, the, you know, I don't know how easily it will be to uh, play into this strategy. Yeah, I have gotten this one before, and it is a random card, and I think that's kind of the biggest weakness for this card. Uh, obviously, it has great potential for the effect. Um, but the unfortunate thing is just being able to dictate the um, flow of the game where you can make sure that at the end of the game, you have one very high power card in your hand to make sure you hit that. It's just so difficult to do um, whether you draw the wrong ends of your deck. So your hand can wind up a little clogged or whether you get the locations that put rocks into your hand. There's just so many different things that can go wrong that I feel like are keeping this card from really hitting um, what its ceiling should be on a regular enough basis to make it worth being played. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, who knows what other cards, will, you know, and, and locations, et cetera, we'll see in the future. So there may be some more to this card, but right now maybe uh, maybe doesn't have its full potential. So yeah. continuing on here, we have Drax. So, you know, obviously uh, we've covered several Guardians of the Galaxy characters uh, in the previous episodes. So a similar ability here. Drax is a four cost, four power card. Drax's ability is on reveal. If your opponent played a card here this turn, plus four power. So Blade, I've, you know, I've had one of these Guardians of the Galaxy cards uh, basically in every episode we've done. What's mm -hmm. your thought about this mechanic? You know, obviously you're guessing uh, where your opponent's going to play, which um, maybe the, the later the game goes on, Drax is something you wouldn't play normally until turn four. Uh, you, you do sometimes have a little bit better of an idea of where they're going to play. Uh, what's your opinion? Do you like to, to play these cards? Do you like to play Drax or similar cards? Uh, so I don't have Drax yet, so I haven't gotten to play them, but I have played Star-Lord and Rocket quite a bit. I do like the mechanic that the Guardians have, just because while on the surface it may seem somewhat random, there's usually clues that your opponent can give you outside of the obvious clues of, like, if they play Hawkeye on a turn, they're probably going to play in that lane the turn after. Uh, mm -hmm. So you have obvious clues like that, but also uh, if you see your opponents playing, like, a one-cost Kazar deck, they're probably going to try and avoid the minus three power location. So that can turn it into kind of a 50 50. And in situations like that, um, I'd like my odds of a 50 50 or maybe even slightly better, slightly worse than a 50 50 in being able to contest and fight for a zone for a four cost eight power versus something like crossbones where it's a 
quote-unquote more guaranteed eight power, but way more limited. And even if Drax misses, four cost for four isn't horrible. So I think the upside is enough where it can be worth being played in some decks. No, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I I personally, uh, I, I hear what you're saying. I think um, Drax, you know, being a higher cost Guardians card, I think you probably get more value in some ways out of uh, Rocket and of Star-Lord. But uh, we'll just have to see, you know, uh, how, how things go later on as more people unlock Drax. Um, up next, we have a card I've seen have a lot of play, and I'm sure you have too. Uh, Enchantress is a four-cost, four-power card, and her ability reads, on reveal, remove the abilities from all ongoing cards at this location. Uh, that is both sides of the board. So uh, this has obviously been used as a, a great counter card to a lot of strategies thus far. Yeah, this is probably, if not the best four drop, definitely up there. Um, and probably at throughout all skill levels of the game, early on when you're first starting playing, the best card that basically every player has to begin with is Iron Man. And that's kind of the um, linchpin of many decks as you're starting out until you start unlocking Enchantress. Um, Iron Man, Ant-Man, um, the, the Devil Dinosaur. There's so many strategies right now that rely on ongoing effects. Um, and Enchantress can kind of just be a one card I win in a lot of situations. And again, like even same kind of with Drax, where if you happen to miss or your opponent doesn't play ongoing cards, four costs for four isn't horrible. And the fact that she can just flat out win games is worth a slot in many, many decks. Yeah, yeah, I agreed. Uh, I've, I've seen her utilized, like you're saying, in those exact scenarios counter um, some of those cards that uh, are seeing a lot of use right now. And I think, you know, for the foreseeable future, she will be uh, an include in, in most decks um, going forward. So um, up next, we have Jubilee. Jubilee is a four cost, one power card. And Jubilee's ability reads, on reveal, play the top card of your deck at this location. Um, not sure if I have a strong, strong opinion either way yet of Jubilee. I haven't seen a ton of people. In, in the streams I've been following, play with Jubilee. I don't know what, what do you think? Jubilee good, bad, middling? Uh, I think Jubilee is a card that needs more support before it can see play. It's kind of similar to Dracula right now, where if you hit a good card on top, obviously four costs for that is pretty awesome. Uh, but there's also more than likely going to be some one and two costs that aren't going to be that worth it. Uh, if we get some more cards in the future where you can draw targeted cards out of your deck let's say filter out your one and two drops maybe flat out destroy the two drops from your deck to where you can filter out to just being your five and six cost cards i think at that point jubilee will see a lot more play i just think uh needs a bit more support first yeah that makes sense uh maybe it's just a not fully formed architect right yeah, yeah. archetype yeah so well up next is another uh um card that you've already mentioned a little bit that I've seen played uh, a lot as well is uh, Kazar and Kazar is a four cost. I hope I'm saying that right. Uh, Kazar, do you pronounce it differently? Did this, I said know? Kazar as well. Yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. It's just one of those ones. I'm like, it could be Kazar. Anyway, Kazar uh, is four cost five power and Kazar's ability is ongoing. Your one cost cards have plus one power. Uh, so yeah, I mean, you've already talked a little bit about it you know, uh, for a strategy where you're kind of filling the board with a lot of low cost cards from your deck or, or cards you've generated, uh, like Squirrel Girl, right? Things like that. 
Um, you can, you know, add kind of that plus one across a lot of the board, you know, similar to Blue Marvel. Obviously, Blue Marvel is all cards, but, uh, you know, you could get some decent power spread across the entire board with Kazar. Yeah, definitely. And I think Kazar is one of those cards that kind of similar to Enchantress is going to kind of just be good at all skill levels, both because Kazar fits into a lot of popular strategies right now, uh, but also I think Kazar is one of the best cards at playing around random locations. Um, when you think about a lot of the disruptive locations, it's adding rocks to your deck. Rocks are one cost cards. Um, there's the one that adds two raptors to the to each side. Uh, they're one cost cards. The negative two ninja is a one cost card. Central Park, obviously the squirrels are one cost cards. So those are supposed to be locations that are detriments to both players. And just having Kazar in your deck makes you have that much more of an advantage over your opponent because now all of those cards that are supposed to be detriments, I won't quite call them strengths, but they are a lot less bad for you by having Kazar in your deck. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's it's less bad for you than it is for your opponent if you've got Kazar in the wings. So makes a lot of sense. And so definitely can kind of play into some of the board the board strategies there. Up next, we have Mr. Negative. Mr. Negative is a four-cost, four-power card. His ability reads, on reveal, swap the power and cost of all cards in your deck. Uh, you know, I'll just say, I, I, whether it's good or bad, you know, we could all have different opinions. I think this is just a really fun ability, right? Um, you know, obviously you can't play until turn four, but uh, and, and then you only have a couple turns left after that. But um, I think we could see some interesting combos uh, with cards that are, available now but also obviously cards that get revealed down the lane yeah I, I this is one of the cards that i'm most excited to mess around with when i have a better collection uh, i've only got him randomly and a lot i think this is one of probably one of the worst cards you can get randomly just because you're typically playing cards that have high power relative to their cost uh, however if you were able to build an, a dedicated deck around mr negative having things like uh, White Tiger or uh, Arnim Zola, and there's a couple other cards that are five and six cost cards that have zero or one power. Being able to flip those into zero and one cost cards with five and six power, and they're already very powerful effects. Um, even even Dracula could be pretty solid in that scenario. Uh, obviously, you need ways to draw all those cards and have all that stuff happen. Um, but it's a card that I'm really excited to experiment with. I have no idea if it's going to wind up being good. Uh, but it's definitely one of the most interesting cards in the game, I think. Yeah, I think it'll be very fun to watch uh, just to see what people come up with as strategies around him. Uh, up next is Namor. Namor's, you know, we saw Namor kind of in some of the first uh, streams put on by uh, Second Dinner. And um, so we kind of all became familiar with him at the very beginning. Namor is a four cost, five power card. His ability reads ongoing plus five power if this is your only card here. So if he's the only card at a location, you're getting a four cost, 10 power guard, uh, which is the highest one we've seen so far that can kind of, you know, get to that level by itself. Yeah. And it's definitely a very strong card. Uh, I, I don't think that the speed of the meta thus far has really been quite conducive to Namor. I think Namor would really shine in a scenario where it's more mid rangey and everybody just kind of playing on curve for the most part. There's a lot of heavy combo plays where you need to stack locations and combine effects. And Namor doesn't really shine in those scenarios. Uh, but he's definitely a solid card. 
great for things like Space Throne, where you can only have one card in that location. Um, I think he's a solid card right now that's going to get better if the meta ever shifts to a more on-curve playstyle. Yeah, and obviously we're we're really just at the beginning of what will most likely be you know, years and years of support for this game. And so mm-hmm. it'll just be interesting to see him kind of come and go. And, and I agree with you. I think, I think there'll be, I think there will be times in the meta when, when he will be more used. So up next, we have Omega red. Omega red is a four cost five power card. His ability uh, is ongoing. If you're ahead by 10 power here, plus four to other locations. Um, you know, right off the bat, I think this ties into something you've already stated today, right? There's there's a lot of bluffing into the strategy. Sometimes you want to look like you're losing uh, at certain locations. Uh, you're not always up by 10 at a location by, you know, turn four when you could play this as the soonest, you know, without any other, you know, um, lowering the cost or whatever. Um, so, yeah, I mean, obviously, plus four to the other locations, that's another eight power. So 13 power total generated by Omega Red. But... I just don't know, you know, how often you're going to be able to play him easily. Yeah, and like you said, 10 power is a pretty steep ask. Um, And if you're not dropping it as a surprise on turn six, uh, let's say you play this on turn four, even if you're ahead by a lot at a location, you're still giving your opponent two more turns to answer that 10 power lead. So you need to either play it on turn six when your opponent doesn't have as much time to answer, or play it on turn four at a location your opponent has already filled up and can't play more cards to. Uh, But in a lot of scenarios, if your opponent is fully filled up at a location already, they're probably quite a bit overextended and probably have a disadvantage elsewhere. Um, I think it falls into a similar bucket as Crossbones, where it's a little bit too too win more to really be good in general. Uh, But I think this probably has a bit more uh, potential than Crossbones as a whole. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. I think um, a little more open to play than, than Crossbones. Okay, up next we have Rockslide. Uh, Rockslide is a four cost, uh, six power card, which is a pretty decent stat line. Uh, we've seen a lot of four fours, et cetera. So uh, Rockslide's ability is on reveal shuffle two useless rocks into your opponent's deck. What are your thoughts here? I think it's pretty interesting. Uh, obviously, being able to brick one of your opponent's draws is incredible, especially on turns five and six when this would be happening. Uh, if you could get this guy out on turn three, even with lower stats, I think this card would be insane. That's kind of the only thing keeping him down is that by turn four, the odds that your opponent drew the most important card for their strategy is somewhat high. Uh, so you're not going to disrupt them as badly, but still being able to rock into your opponent in late game where you're going to make it so that roughly, if not more than 50% of their deck in the end game is rocks, could potentially give you a pretty solid advantage depending on your opponent's deck type. It's tough to fit this guy in because four is a pretty competitive slot. That kind of second half of your curve is very, very competitive, so I don't know where he fits in all the time necessarily, uh, but those rocks are not to be underestimated. Yeah, you know, just looking at the percentages and the draw rates, I mean, there's a lot there. Yeah, obviously, the earlier you can get those rocks in, the earlier you could disrupt potentially. And um, yeah, uh, you know, you know, if, if you play this in a, in a round where you have a location that lowers the cost of cards, or if there's other cards later on that will lower cost of cards, 
obviously, like you say, getting this out earlier could uh, could be a good card. So awesome. Uh, up next, we have Ronan the Accuser. Ronan is a four cost, zero power card, and his ability is ongoing. Plus two power for each card in your opponent's hand. So kind of the opposite of the um, Devil Dinosaur, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so similar effect, uh, higher cost though. Uh, and you obviously have less control because it's your opponent's hand. Yeah. And I, I think for that reason alone, I would argue that at a minimum, the cost of Ronin and the devil dinosaur should be swapped. Uh, obviously with devil dinosaur, you have complete control over your hand. Um, and things like moon girl, we've seen comboed quite often. You can control having your hand close to max at all times. Whereas Ronin, unless you're playing against the Devil Dinosaur deck, you can't really do much to keep Ronin powerful enough. Um, I, I, I think he just kind of falls flat. He might even need to cost even less than Devil Dinosaur to be that good. Uh, but maybe he's designed just to be a tech card against Devil Dinosaur. I don't yeah. really know. I just feel like it's too tough to make him work. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't think you'll see a lot of play right now unless there's something else around that. So, Up next, we have Sandman. Sandman is a four-cost, one-power card. Sandman's ability reads, ongoing. Players can only play one card at a time. Uh, I think this is interesting. I think uh, it's interesting. Uh, there's uh, uh, I want to say there's a location that has a similar ability that limits players to playing only one card at a time, and or maybe I'm thinking of another card. Um but obviously can really slow the tempo of the game in the later turns. You know, obviously turn five, you could play a five cost. Turn six, you could play six cost. But a lot of people in a lot of strategies, maybe you're playing a two and a three cost, right, on turn six. And so uh, this could limit some combos in the late game. Yeah, and I think that's definitely the point of Sandman because, you know, four power for or four cost for one power, you're almost skipping your turn four, especially assuming your opponent is playing a roughly a four cost alongside your Sandman. So really you're looking to Sandman to do kind of what Enchantress does to like Devil Dinosaur and Iron Man decks, uh, most notably being like a Nova combo deck. Um, If they haven't laid down their Nova in advance yet, you could maybe play Sandman to try and make them stretch out that Nova combo over turn five and turn six, which makes them considerably weaker if they haven't already flooded the board. Um, Sandman's going to be very meta dependent in general, I think he is a little bit below average, uh, but and I think in general, Professor X does a similar job better, but there's definitely going to be metas and times where Sandman can be incredible. Yeah, where he could be a, a very important block to have against certain types of decks. I agree. Uh, up next is Shang-Chi. Shang-Chi is a four-cost, three-power card. His ability is, on reveal, destroy all enemy cards at this location that have nine or power. Want to ask you, Blade? Have you unlocked Shang Chi, and you've been have you been able to pull this off and and throw off your opponent in the last turn? I have not yet, but it seems like it would be incredibly fun. <laughs> yeah, it seems like another potential counter to things like Devil Dinosaur. Um, and there's a couple other cards, you know, things like people discarding um, what is it, Apocalypse, or the that gets doubled when it gets discarded. There's a couple other really big, beefy endgame cards. So while in general it's not super common right now that a lot of, that a lot of cards are getting buffed to nine or more, um, there are definitely times it happens, and I only imagine it's going to become more common. So this could be a incredible blowout card in the end game. Oh yeah, I, I 100% agree. You know, 
I think we've seen this in some of the content second dinners put out. And I think we've seen a couple of people start to unlock it. And uh, it's just one of those, I, I think really fun moments when you can really just reveal this at the end or one of the last turns and really throw off your opponent. So mm-hmm. up next, we have Spider-Man again, one of the first cards revealed in uh, by second dinner. Spider-Man is a four cost two power card. Spider-Man's ability reads on reveal. Your opponent can't play cards at this location next turn. What are your general impressions of Spider-Man's ability? I think Spider-Man is really, really interesting, um, especially because it rewards you for knowing your opponent's kind of general strategy. If you know where your opponent might be trying to set up a combo, or even if your opponent might have overextended early, being able to shut down key strategic locations to the, for them um, on a turn when you may want to set up a counterplay next turn, um, I think Spider-Man just has a ton of strategic depth to him. It's going to be good in so many situations, almost all the time. Um, definitely a card I'm super looking forward to unlocking. Yeah, I just imagine, obviously, playing this on turn five, being able to lock your opponent out of, you know, finishing something on turn six of a location, very powerful. Um, up next, we have Spider-Woman. Spider-Woman is a four-cost, four-power card. Her ability is, on reveal, inflict all enemy cards here with minus one power. So... Uh, you could see it as you get the four power, you're, you know, if your opponent's maxed out their board, you're getting minus four power. So, I mean, you could call that a, a four eight if you would, uh, if it works out the best. Um, so I, I'd say a pretty decent card. Yeah, I think she's definitely a great curve filler. Um, over time, I could potentially see her getting pushed out as your collection kind of expands a bit. Um, but just, you know, with um odin decks and just in general a lot of players are going wide um so being able to get a a minus four i think spider woman might be one of the most reliable you know four cost eight power cards that are that we've seen so far and just being good at kind of causing big point swings that your opponent might not be ready for and i think she's actually one of the better four costs to play on turn six in conjunction with the two drop just because your opponent might not be ready for you to attack two different locations and she's capable of that big point swing. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely could throw a location at the very end. Agreed. Uh, up next is Swordmaster. Swordmaster is a four cost seven power card. His ability is on reveal, discard a card from your hand. Uh, I think this is one of the first or, or maybe the second we've seen today that is a, you know, a discard archetype. Uh, have you been playing any discard decks at all? I don't quite have enough cards to really make it work quite yet. You know, I have Wolverine. I do have Swordmaster now. I have Blade. I just don't quite have enough to really make it work. But I will say that Swordmaster as a whole is probably the most common discard card that I've seen outside of uh, Lady Sif. But Swordmaster is just one of those cards where for the body in general, I'm seeing a lot of people play him even if they're not running discard decks just because of the point value and a lot of those decks can afford to give up the card yeah no that that makes a lot of sense up next we have the thing so uh you know if you've been listening to the other episodes you know every tier kind of has a non-ability card uh that just has descriptive text that is the thing for four cost cards he is a four cost six power card his descriptive text reads it's clobbering time uh you know i've talked to other people on the other episodes blade Obviously, there are a couple of cards and locations that play into, you know, buffing uh, cards without abilities. 
but I don't think there's enough there right now to really create a solid archetype, uh, unless obviously where that we had the featured uh, Washington DC location uh, previously, which buffs uh, cards without abilities. Unless we have that, I just I just don't think this is a card you're going to obviously play with long term. Yeah, I, I think that is his only purpose is if Washington DC is the featured location and you want to, you know, switch things up a little bit, smash a deck together of a bunch of cards like the thing and in general, and just go have fun with it and you'll have a great power swing at Washington DC. Uh, but yeah, in general, um, he's cool, but those vanilla stats aren't enough to make it worth playing. Yep. Agreed. Well, I think we've got a couple here in the list that are, are on the list. Uh, I guess I didn't, I didn't say this, this episode, I've been saying this, trying to say this every episode. We are using Marvel snap.io again. It is a website created by a member of the community has a database of the cards. Uh, we're looking at the revealed cards uh, that are in the game, but I believe we're going to skip over a couple that we know about, but aren't officially into the build yet. So we will, uh, we will continue on here. We've just got a few left to cover here in the four costs. So continuing on, we have Typhoid Mary. Typhoid Mary is a four cost, 10 power card. So the highest base power we've seen for a four drop. And her ability is ongoing. Your, uh, your other cards have minus one power. And that is not at this location. That is across the board. So uh, for a max size board, let's see, that'd be minus 11. If you had every slot filled, not mm-hmm. saying you're going to, but uh, obviously would, I would outweigh her, her uh, strength there. So uh, you generally want to use her when you're not going to fill up the board a ton, or, you know, even if there's something you can do to remove her ability with zero, for example. Yeah, and I, I think that's really what you're going to need to do is either combo Typhoid Mary with Enchantress or in a deck where you know your opponent might hit you with Enchantress. Um, in general, I think the downside is a little bit too much to make her worth it. Um, there's probably going to be ways in the future where you might be able to make it worth it. Uh, but if you think, like, even if I'm playing the one biggest card I can play every turn for six turns and Typhoid Mary is my turn four, that means at a minimum, at least five other cards are getting reduced, uh, which then means I'm getting minus five from her. So she becomes a four cost five power, which at that point she's like under the power curve. So you need to either remove the ongoing or play less than like three or four other cards, which doesn't seem like a winning strategy. No, yeah. I mean, obviously we were just saying Thing doesn't really have a place, but at that point Thing would have a better stat line. So uh, yeah, we will see how she plays into different strategies later on. Up next, we have Warpath. Warpath is a four cost, five power card. The ability reads ongoing. If any of your locations are empty, plus four power. Uh, And I believe I'm just reading this, you know, I'm imagining how it's written. So it's if at least one of your other locations is empty, you get plus four power to this card. Uh, it's not, you don't get a double up if both other locations are empty, correct? Uh, yeah, that's that's how I'd read it as well. Yep. Yeah, so I haven't seen a ton of people unlock Warpath. I mean, obviously some have. Have you seen people playing with Warpath at all? I have not seen this card at all. And I just think that this card kind of plays against a lot of the design of the game. Just because if you want to maximize Warpath, you need to completely ignore and abandon a location, which at that point, you're kind of limiting yourself 
to just fighting for two locations. And it's so hard to try and make sure that you're only winning two specific locations if you're ignoring the third. I, I think he'd honestly need quite a bit more power to be able to try find a way to make that work. Yeah, I mean, if this was plus eight power or something, right, where you're, this is going to turn to a 13 or something crazy like that, I think you could maybe convince yourself to use it. Mm-hmm. But like you said, I mean, you really have to kind of keep all the locations open as far as trying to win them in most situations that we've seen, right? Yeah. Um, and so if you're cutting yourself off, you're really just lowering your chances of winning in a lot of ways. Up next, we have White Queen. White Queen is a four-cost, six-power card. Her ability reads, on reveal, draw a copy of a six-cost card in your opponent's hand. Um, obviously, an interesting ability. Uh, you know, like you said, you know, at this point when you're on turn four, if, if you can play her with the four power, or sorry, with the four cost, and um, there is a, likely, a high likelihood that your opponent's maybe drawn one or two of their six-cost cards that they maybe have as kind of a, a last-turn card they'd like to play, but things like uh, America Chavez, right? She's not going to be drawn by your opponent till turn mm-hmm. six. So I don't know. I, I think there's some ups and downs here. Yeah. And I think that's where her stat line comes in handy because at worst, even if she whiffs, she's on par with the thing who, while you probably wouldn't run the thing naturally in your deck, if that's your fallback plan, that's not too bad because your alternative could be grabbing things like Odin or Blue Marvel or, you know, take your pick. There's so many good six-cost cards. And while there's no guarantee that that six-cost card is going to fit your particular strategy, um, it definitely could give you an additional option on turn six that your opponent uh, might not be able to play into. Let's say I have Odin and then I pull a Blue Marvel from you. Sure, your opponent's going to know that you drew a copy of a six-cost card, so you probably know I have Blue Marble. But now on turn six, whereas maybe before you only had to play around my Odin because I'm playing an on-reveal deck, now you have to think of, can I play around both? Can I get myself in a winning position around both? Or do I have to just pick one and try and guess which one my opponent's going to play? Yeah, and and obviously that could open up the option for your opponent to retreat, depending on Mm -hmm. how many cubes are already on the line, if you've snapped and. If they if they know they'll lose for sure one and win the other, then you know that's a 50-50 chance at that point. So yeah, can definitely plays into this great this great bluffing that you know is just part of the strategy with uh, with Marvel Snap. So uh, up next and actually uh, up last for our four cost cards is Wong. I think Wong is a fun card. Wong's uh, four cost and a two power card. Wong's ability reads ongoing. Your on-reveal abilities at this location happen twice. What do you think about Wong? I think he's a lot of fun. Uh, Definitely the kind of card that I would want to run in a lot of my decks. Um, However, I think he comes down just probably a turn too late to really be able to maximize that value. Um, Being Basically, if you're locking yourself into just turns five and six, if you can't cheat Wong out earlier, um, I feel like you're probably missing out on a little bit of power. Whereas even if I'm playing a completely dedicated on reveal deck, I probably want to have a little bit stronger of a play on turn four, but uh, I feel like I'd have to run enough tests um, even with that dedicated on reveal deck with and without Wong to see how it affects my win rates of having him to set up powerful turns five and six. 
versus if I just had my normal turn five and six and a more powerful turn four. Um, I lean towards probably not worth it at four, but I also would have to do a lot of testing to confirm. Yeah, yeah. That, those would definitely be interesting numbers to see of what really is the impact, positive or negative, uh, in this archetype. So, well, awesome. You know, those are all the forecast cards. Actually, I believe the forecasts are the, the lowest pool we have thus far. Uh, all the other pools of different costs are higher. Um, but I appreciate you being here to talk about a blade. We've talked about a lot of cards, uh, a lot of strategies, how they work with other cards, etc. But I would love to just hear, you know, what your favorite forecast card is. And that can be because of ability, strategy, but also could be because of the art or you just really like this Marvel character. What is your favorite forecast card right now? Probably, I, I've got to go in two different directions. Uh, Enchantress is my probably top overall, just because I think she's so good in game winning. Um, she's really growing on me just because of how useful she has been for me. Uh, but I'm a memer at heart. I like playing weird decks and doing weird things that are off meta. So Mr. Negative is my top in that department, and I can't wait to get him. Awesome. No, I think that's great. You went with the what, what's really working right now, you know, and, and it's consistent, but I couldn't agree with you more. I think Mr. Negative, I, I just love to do the wild and the wacky in card games. So I think he will be one of the most fun to watch. So awesome. Well, Blade, thank you again for being here. Uh, appreciate you being here, being part of the series where we break down the cards. Uh, I would love to give you the chance. Just tell the listeners where they can find you, where they can follow you and how they can, you know, best support your content. Sure. Um, so on Twitter, I am at I am Blade, Blade with a Y, uh, B-L-A-Y-D-E. Uh, on YouTube, I'm just uh, slash Blade. Um, yeah, thank you very much for having me. This is a blast. Uh, definitely a great time. Yeah, no problem. We'd love to have you on again in another, another episode down the road. But uh, listeners, thank you for listening. Thanks for, you know, continuing your support and continuing this series. Uh, we're, we're moving towards the end of this series of breaking down. We'll obviously have the five cost card episode and the six cost card episode. And then we will be moving on to other great and exciting content, uh, continuing to feature awesome creators, uh, part of the Marvel snap community. Thank you for listening. Can't stop snapping is a podcast written, produced, recorded, and hosted by Michael Thurman. Thanks for listening.